Hello, everyone. Alex back with a great Millennium Live interview session today with someone that I think everybody's going to enjoy, not just in the healthcare space, even though that's where Paul Ginsburg has spent a majority of his life working on health policy and management and all sorts of important topics that are still extremely topical today. To give you some background on Paul, because there's a lot to get to, he's got a very impressive background. Currently, he's a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. I think everybody who's probably listening to this has heard of Brookings or is familiar with their work. Uh, for those of you who don't know, because I was looking up some interesting facts on Brookings, since 2008, the University of Pennsylvania, who monitors think tanks from what I understand across the world, has named Brookings not only the top think tank of the world since that time, but every year has been the recipient from their department as the top think tank of the year. So very impressive organization, which I know a lot of you guys already know and may have connected with them at some point. Paul's also a senior fellow at the Schaefer Center for Public Policy at USC, uh, which um, is a role that I know is, is very near and dear to his heart. Additional background on Paul is from 1995 through the end of 2013. He founded and served as the president of the Center for Studying Health System Change, HSC, initiated with core support from a great organization, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Um, HSC conducts research to inform policymakers and other audiences about changes in organization, financing, and delivery of care, and their effects on people. HSC has historically been known for the objectivity and technical quality of its research and its success in communicating it to its policymakers, industry, and the media, as well as to the research community. Prior to his founding of HSC, Paul served as the founding executive director of the predecessor to the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, MedPAC. Widely regarded as highly influential, the commission developed the Medicare Physician Payment Reform that was enacted by Congress back in the late 80s, 1989. In 2016, uh, Mr. Ginsburg was appointed MedPAC commissioner. He was also a senior economist at RAND and served as deputy assistant director at the CBO, which we're going to talk about for sure, because that's a very interesting role. And before that, he served on the faculties of Duke and Michigan State Universities, although if they when they met up in the Final Four or in college basketball tournament, I'm curious to know who he rooted for, because that probably wasn't an easy choice. And we're going to talk a little bit about his time where uh, at Harvard, where he earned his doctorate in economics. In addition to being a noted speaker and consultant on the changes in the financing and delivery of healthcare, particularly on the evolution of healthcare markets, Mr. Ginsburg puts together presentations um, and comments on the overall direction of change. Uh, recent topics have included cost trends and drivers, consumer-driven healthcare, provider payment reform, price transparency, uh, and the future of healthcare overall. So I know that was a mouthful, but he's done a lot. I wanted everyone to get an idea of all the work or some of the most important things that he's done. Before we get to his career specifically and questions that I'm going to ask him about healthcare today and where he, he, hopes it, he hopes it goes in the future, we're going to start like we always do with his early life. Paul was born in New York City, raised in New York City, and remained a New Yorker even from a state perspective after high school. So I'm going to bring Paul in. Paul, welcome to the podcast. We're, we're thrilled to have you. Um, I know you left a good impact uh, at the event previously. Thank you so much for being here with us. Well, it's really a pleasure to do this interview with you. As, as I mentioned before, you were born and raised in New York City. If you could give us an idea of your uh, family dynamic was when you were growing up in New York City, what New York City was like and kind of what, what your educational exposure was like all the way up until your high school years. I think that would be a good start for us. Oh, sure. Well, I, 
and I grew up, uh, I'd say, lower middle class in New York City in a very interesting uh, housing development called Parkchester, which actually was a campus of high-rise apartment buildings, uh, an investment by Metropolitan Life Insurance Company that was actually run somewhat as a, uh, a social engineering project by the company's CEO. It's a very interesting uh, history, but uh, it's almost like, uh, you know, living in a park-like setting in the middle of New York City. New York City was a really good place to grow up at that time. Uh, you know, I liked it because I could be very independent. I had buses and subways and could go places, had playgrounds I could walk to, and uh, very different from uh, the way kids grow up today in many areas. But the, uh, you know, in the environment I grew up, you know, everyone went to college in my generation. And uh, it was just a matter of where you went. And uh, I kind of broke the mold a little bit and, uh, you know, went out of town to go to college. Uh, uh, in uh, what is, at that time was a small liberal arts college, part of the State University of New York called Harper College. Um, now called, now it's not so small anymore, called Binghamton University. And, uh, you know, found, started off as a math major. Uh, when I got to more advanced math, which is very theoretical, uh, didn't like that so much anymore and uh, turned to economics and have been at that profession since then. So I went to graduate school in economics at Harvard University. I got a PhD in uh, 1971. Uh, that was 50 years ago. Wow. You, you, I can see you, the, uh, the listeners can't, but you look, you look good. Yeah, I'm, I still graduated feel, 50 years ago. do feel pretty good and have always been an active, perhaps because I've always been uh, an exerciser. Well, that's good. More I can say for myself. Although I did exercise this weekend for the first time in many months, but I need to, I need, I definitely do need to exercise more. Um, I wanted to ask you when you were growing up in New York City, Paul, what was your family dynamic like? What did your parents do for work? Did you have any siblings? You know, my father was, you know, an administrative type in the New York City government. And my mother stayed home until I was in high school. And then she worked as an executive secretary also in New York City government, actually for the Albert Einstein Hospital. And uh, I had a younger brother who uh, eventually, I remember the only career advice I got from my father was uh, not to become a lawyer. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't That's probably good advice. Probably was good advice. Uh, you know, he had actually was one of these people that graduated law school in depression. It was very hard to get a job and never really practiced. And, uh, but my brother wound up becoming a lawyer. And, uh, you know, I think uh, having a good career as a lawyer, but uh, he's retired, he's younger, I'm still going strong. And, uh, you know, I guess that was a dynamic. I mentioned that, uh, you know, in that environment, there was no question that we would go to college. And, uh, you know, we prepared for that and, uh, and went. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed the, uh, the freedom of uh, being out of the house uh, for college very much. It seems obvious that both you and your brother were were bright. I mean, you specifically majoring in math. That's not that's not. It seems like a major, at least in my circles when I was going to college, is one that people were gravitating towards because it's it, there, there's obviously a challenge. Just math courses in general, let alone the major. Were your parents when you were growing up? Was there a big emphasis on education and 
you know, making that a big part of your life or how, how, how is education blended into your upbringing is, is what I'm, was what I'm asking. Well, yeah, I would say it was just the norm in the neighborhood. You know, this was a lower middle class Jewish neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And of course, everybody pursued education. And it wasn't that my parents had to push me. That's just what everyone around me was doing. Got it. Uh, now, the one thing I should mention is that I did, you know, even though I wasn't particularly interested in science, I, like many of my peers, applied to the Bronx High School of Science because that was the best high school in the Bronx. Sure. And uh, and I went there. Uh, you know, looking back, I'm not sure that that was a great place for me, you know, not being that interested in science. But I certainly had uh, very bright uh, fellow students. And, uh, you know, whether that uh, was a positive or a negative, I don't know. In a sense, I found when I was... Uh, uh, went to college and I was uh, in a smaller environment and uh, uh, much closer to the top. That was actually more appealing to me. What was the motivation to go to go to school in upstate New York? Out of any university there was in America, was it was it because you were a New York resident already and it, it may have helped financially, or was there a particular reason for? I know at the time it was Harper, but for. For Bainton, what what was the what was the main reason you picked there for undergrad? Yeah, it was a combination of uh, being able to leave the house and uh, and the low tuition. Yeah, I mentioned you know we didn't have a lot of money, and uh, so that seemed to be you know somehow I just wasn't that interested. You know, I saw very very large numbers of people from uh, my high school went to Columbia uh, University in New York City. Sure. And I was just never that interested in doing that. So, uh, yeah, so it wasn't a very extensive search. It was just I'd heard good things about Harper, compared it to, uh, you know, going locally at the uh, part of the City University of New York, say Queens College. What was the reason to major in math? Why, why did you pick math? What was, the, what was the motivation? I'm just always very good at math. And like that, ironically, you know, some people would say, oh, you should become an engineer. I certainly, you know, considered going to an engineering program in college. As I know myself today, I'm not cut out to be an engineer at all. <laughs> it's really a good thing I never committed myself in that direction. And then you you leave Binghamton and you go directly. Is Did you go directly to graduate school at Harvard or did you take time off? I, I did. It was something that I would rather have not done. Not done the program or not gone Not right gone away. directly. Not gone okay. directly. In a sense, I've always, you know, uh, was pleased that my children had the opportunity and took the opportunity to do something you know, with work after college before deciding what to do, uh, if they were going to do any postgraduate education. And, uh, but, uh, you know, when I compared the options of serving in the army uh, or uh, going to graduate school, decided to go to graduate school. And, and how would you, looking back on your experience at Harvard and the PhD program, what, what was that experience like for you? Well, you know, one thing I would say is that it was, uh, I would have benefited from having taken some time off before that, mm-hmm. because I was so young, but it was, uh, you know, very rigorous. The, uh, it was a very large program. You know, there were 50 entering uh, economics PhD students in my year. And that was a negative of it. Uh, but it certainly was very rigorous. When you chose to take the PhD program in, in economics, was it because 
more so that you were interested in it or you were hoping that that program would lead to something else afterwards? Well, I was interested in economics. I loved economics and still do actually. So it wasn't, I wasn't thinking about careers. I was just knowing I want to be an economist. Probably I didn't know that much about what economists do in real life. Yeah. yeah. But I liked economics. And it's interesting because at USC, I know at the Schaefer Center, everything you do revolves around, it sounds like the intersection of health policy and economics. And I, and I think not to get too far off topic, because I want to, I want to get back to kind of go through this timeline with you. Uh, it's interesting because I don't think when a lot of people think about healthcare, especially the time when a general election comes around and they're looking at what people, candidates, healthcare proposals are, I think people underestimate or don't realize, and correct me if I'm wrong, how much healthcare policy actually impacts the economy. From what I remember in reading about this particular topic, healthcare specifically makes up, again, 20% of our GDP um, as one of our biggest areas. Is that is that number about right? Yeah, it's approaching 20%. That's right. It's very important for the economy. Uh, but actually, you know, that's a macroeconomic aspect. You know, m- my work is mostly in how economics, incentives, uh, behavior of uh, firms and consumers, you know, how they influence the type of healthcare we have. And when you mentioned policy, I would say that throughout my career, I have bounced back and forth between uh, work that was predominantly what I would call health policy research. And by that, I mean research that's relevant to health policy about how the healthcare system works. And the contrasting activity is health policy, let's call it health policy analysis. This is, you know, there's a problem in the healthcare system. Uh, you know, what's the cause of it? What are the options to do something about it? Uh, what, you know, with each option, what will be the, uh, the pros and cons of it? And, uh, and perhaps what's the recommendation for addressing that problem? And it's a very different type of analysis. They're very related. They feed on each other. Sure. Probably why I've been able to go back and forth. So, you know, the Center for Studying Health System Change was a research organization. It learned more about how the healthcare system functions, but it had in mind, you know, what research would be relevant to health policy. Uh, what I've done since I've been at Brookings uh, has been working more on policies in a sense, you know, how to, you know, what should we do about drug prices? Or is there a better way to pay for hospitals and physicians for the services they provide? Uh, so I'm in one of my policy analysis phases of my career. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been in a sense drawn on what I've learned in the research phases. So walk us through postgraduate, PhD graduate life. You graduate from Harvard, you have your PhD in economics. What's the first thing you do now that you're not a student anymore? Okay. Well, first thing I wound up doing, uh, taking a position as a commissioned officer in the United States Public Health Service, uh, responding to someone who's very enterprising in a federal agency in what today is the Department of Health and Human Services, mm-hmm. uh, who recognized that he could recruit, you know, he could fill positions 
in this agency with commissioned officers in the public health service or regular civil servants interchangeably. So he was able to offer many people who, again, were still subjects of the draft. These were physicians and others, uh, commissions in the public health service to, uh, you know, meet their military obligation. And so I served two years in the public health service, never wore a uniform, but, uh, and did the same work a civil servant would have done. Uh, but it was, uh, it was basically, uh, giving out grant and contract money and monitoring those efforts. It actually was a good introduction to the health policy research world or health economics world because it introduced me to some of the leading health economists of the day uh, who had grants with that agency. So you did that for about, what was it, two years? It was for two years. And then what was your next, what was your next stop? You know, my next stop, you know, that I was not that inclined to become an academic, but decided that, uh, you know, if I'm ever going to try academia, this would be a good time in my career to do it. So I, uh, it took you were a, about, you were roughly about how old at the time? I was uh, 27. Yeah, I was really, young. I had a PhD at the age of 25. Oh, wow. And, and academia started where for you? Michigan State. Okay. And what did, what did you do there? Well, I taught uh, economics uh, and also had an appointment with the medical school. And, you know, actually to this day, Michigan State has two medical schools. It has an allopathic medical school and it has an osteopathic medical school. And uh, I actually, you know, had been connected, you know, not at the same time with both of them. That's what I did at Michigan State. I actually liked Michigan State and liked uh, living in East Lansing. But then, uh, uh, you know, a more exciting job came along and I was recruited by Duke to join their public policy school, which was a fairly new school at the time. Today it's called the Sanford School and thus, you know, went to, uh, went to Duke. And uh, that was a little different being in a public policy school rather than economics departments. So I had colleagues from other disciplines there and actually policy, you know, colleagues who had interests other than healthcare as well, although I was used to that. And then I, you know, was able to, actually was told by a friend that, you know, CBO, Congressional Budget Office, is looking yep. for people, and, uh, you know, took a position there on leave from Duke University. CBO had no problem with the fact that I was just on leave because they were quite confident that I would stay there. And they were right. And this was when you when you joined the CBO, who around what year was this? 1978. So that is Jimmy Carter administration. Yes, it was the Carter administration. Alice Rivlin, who was the founding executive director of CBO, was the director then. In the role that you were in, because I, I see here you were the deputy assistant director. So in regard in regards, Paul, to the CBO. Even now, how, how many years did you spend there? Six years. So even now, that many years later, I noticed that when politicians in Congress, especially, or even in the presidential administration, they talk about policy, they usually reference the CBO. And I know, like, for example, the CBO during the 2017 tax cut discussion, 
that was done at the end of the first year of the Trump administration. I know the CBO, at least by the Democrats, was referenced a lot because they would say the CBO has modeled this out and it's going to lead to significant amounts of debt. And then the Republicans would say, well, it's not because the tax, this tax bill will lead to X amount of growth. Is, is the CBO, as far am, am I getting the right read that the CBO still today is the standard bearer in D.C. of analysis when it comes to the budget and when it comes to things related to spending money? Uh, you know, CBO has, <clears throat> there's two things. Uh, one is scorekeeper. You know, CBO makes these calls about how much a bill is going to cost, uh, you know, what effect it might have on the economy. Uh, that's a scorekeeping role. <clears throat> The other role CBO plays is a more analytic role about uh, health policy, I mean, about public policy in all areas, which is that if you do this policy, here are the various impacts it'll have, here are the pros and cons of that policy. And you know, probably the scorekeeping role is the most critical role because if CBO says, you know, this bill is going to cost you know, a lot of money, uh, that, that could be enough to kill the bill. So in a sense, uh, you know, CBO plays a very important role, you know, a more a very visible role in scorekeeping, more off the camera role as far as working with congressional staff, helping them understand policy areas and, uh, um, you know, helping them think through what would be, you know, effective approaches to deal with a problem. Okay, so you were you were at the CBO till about what, 1984? That's right. And what was the reason? You left. I uh, wanted to try something different. It's, you know, I love being a CBO. Learned a, a larger amount. Really learned about policy in the, you know, sometimes academics, when they talk about policy, it's at 30,000 feet. You know, it's big picture. CBO and other parts of the government, you have to understand policy at the nitty gritty level. Because when legislation is written on policy, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot a detail that has to be worked out about how it's administered. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of detailed questions about uh, how the policy applies. So I really learned about what policy was. I learned about, you know, a very different perspective where, you know, in academia, people have their own ideas about what policymakers are interested in. At CBO, you really learn readily because you, it's, CBO is like a consulting firm for Congress. So in a sense, you have clients. You're doing work for particularly for committee chairs and ranking minority members mm-hmm. uh, of committees who have particular questions they're interested in. So you start learning about, you know, th- these things are important about policy. These are what this is what the policymakers want to learn from us. You know, one of the, one of the around the time I got really interested in healthcare policy is when the Affordable Care Act, right before it got passed. I think that was at some point in 2010. Did you have any involvement? either with advising, you know, the administration at that time, or were you dealing with people in Congress? Were you, were you providing advice? Or w- did you have any involvement at all in the D.C. scene when it came to Obamacare? You know, a fairly limited amount of involvement. You know, that was during one of my research, one of the research phases of my career. And, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, probably was not that active. I've been much more active in other pieces of legislation, such as, uh, you know, I guess as you had mentioned in the introduction, uh, you know, how the Medicare program should pay physicians. I was very engaged in, uh, in the prospective payment for hospitals, inpatient prospective payment, the DRG system, mm-hmm. uh, in working uh, 
now, particularly with the Ways and Means Committee staff, uh, as they were, uh, you know, working up their language uh, implications. Uh, there was an attempt in the Carter administration to have uh, uh, hospital cost containment. Uh, was very engaged in that, but I would say in the uh, Affordable Care Act, uh, you know, probably fairly limited. Yeah, you know, the ACA was a very peculiar type of event because you know what you would have expected us to be debating now and what you see debated within the Democratic Party today is whether to expand coverage using a uh, you know private insurance or whether to go to a single payer system. Sure. You know, that's what the progressives, Bernie Sanders, uh, want to do. Ironically, the Affordable Care Act was Democrats, you know, deciding from the beginning, we're going to do this with private insurance. Basically, that's the way Republicans want to expand health care. But because what? of the political environment at the time, you know, Republicans that would have, you know, like in Massachusetts. Yep. Yep. Romney, uh, right? So they had, you know, the Democrats and uh, uh, you had progressive Democrats, more moderate Democrats, and Mitt Romney and Republicans, you know, they worked out doing something like the Affordable Care Act because their compromise was, yes, we'll do this with private insurance. Mm -hmm. And Republicans in Massachusetts were fine with that. That's what, with where they always wanted to go. But when it came down to the Affordable Care Act, it was influenced so much by Republican hostility to President Obama and not wanting him to succeed, that in a sense, they said, instead of saying compromising, say, well, we'd like to be less aggressive, but yeah, we agree with you. Let's expand coverage using private insurance. They just said, we're opposed to this. Never were able to come up with an alternative. Well, still, I mean, even, still, yeah, I know Obama, Obama's been out of office since what? The beginning of 2017, they still haven't been able to come up with anything. And what's interesting about the Affordable Care Act, well, there were compromises made, I remember. I mean, I, I don't think maybe Obama himself or the architects of the original legislation got everything they wanted. They, they, made, they made concessions. And I think, if I remember correctly, not one Republican in Congress voted for the Affordable Care Act, which I find so interesting because you bring up a good point, Paul, about the um, expanding health care through the private market. The private markets post the Affordable Care Act after people kind of figured it out, remained not only very profitable, from my recall, even more, even more profitable. And yes, right. I, so I, this, oh, sorry, this is no, a situation no, where, you know, here Democrats were working through, re, you know, Republican ideas of how to expand health insurance and Republicans were, didn't want to engage with them. Yeah, they didn't, they, they, I don't even think they got a single vote. Would you say now looking in 2021 with all of your expertise and experience, that the Affordable Care Act, has been, Care Act has been a net positive for the country, or yeah, yeah, to me, it's clearly been a net positive. It has expanded coverage substantially. It has, uh, you know, done things of you know, for not only for low income people that couldn't afford coverage, but middle middle income people who maybe want to change jobs, um, yep. maybe want to start their own company. Uh, you know, didn't want to lose their health insurance, and now they know they can buy something. Um, on exchanges. Uh, so uh, you know, I think it's expansion of coverage and it's providing assurance that uh, everyone who wants to be covered can be. 
Uh, you know, I think that's been, you know, really big accomplishments. And, uh, you know, there, there really, you know, have not been, you know, particular ill effects on the healthcare system. In fact, even it didn't cost as much as mm -hmm. it projected. And what's interesting about the Affordable Care Act is a lot of people don't realize that the other side of the law, not just getting people covered, was making sure that even if you could, you had all the money in the world and you can afford whatever healthcare insurance you wanted, you were still now going to be more protected from insurance companies taking advantage of loopholes that could make you not realize that you weren't as covered as you were, i.e. Uh, term limits, uh, making sure that you're not going to be you're not going to be messed with if you have a pre-existing condition. So I never really understood what got me interested in, in, in policy and politics in general was all around this time of the formation of the Affordable Care Act. And it seemed so obvious that I know Obama himself said that if we were starting the country from scratch, yeah, it would be ideal to maybe try to put a one single payer, you know, type of system together, but we're not. A lot of people like their private insurance and private the, the insurance markets they generate a lot of revenue and they have a lot of jobs that they, that, or a lot of jobs that they've created and continue to create. So we can do this by beefing up um, and making sure that more people are getting access to insurance through the private markets. I know one thing that the Biden administration talks about, which is something that the Obama administration wanted to do was create a public option also. And it seems like from what I was reading, there could be a lot of positives for that as well, overall for consumers. Do you think that's going to get done in the Biden administration? That's a really good question. Let me, I think the interest, interest in the public option is coming from two very different directions. And, uh, you know, one of the directions, and I think the directions that uh, kind of mainstream Democrats have in mind is that it's a way to uh, get prices down. Since the public option is a way to uh, have lower provider prices. Uh, for uh, people in some plans, and this might have an effect on uh, prices in other plans. Uh, whereas I think there's another train of thought that says, well, you know, we can't get single payer. Public option looks a little bit like single payer, but it's voluntary. Uh, but I think the important thing with public option is a way to actually, uh, you know, find places where insurance markets are not very competitive and bring another competitor in and uh, someone getting some some clout to uh, uh, lead to lower provider prices. I think, you know, when I think of the Biden administration, they've got so much on their plates mm. now. So, you know, I don't see, at least in the first term, uh, something happening. But, you know, I think that's going to be pursued by at the state level. So, Paul, what, one, one issue and one topic I know that you focus on a lot, have focused on a lot, and you've written a lot about is drug pricing. And that, that obviously is a, is a big issue in the United States of America, of America in comparison to other countries around the world. When I think of the debate on drug pricing, I feel like it's a little bit different, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's a little bit different in relation to healthcare in general, where both sides, both political parties seem to pitch to their constituents that, that, that drug prices should be lower. Are, are we too deep into our model to actually effectively do something about lowering the cost of prescription drugs? Or can we do something with the model we have? Or do things need to be completely reworked? What, what are your thoughts in the general sense about how we get drug prices lower? Well, you know, we've always had, call it a competitive model for a drug price setting. And, uh, you know, meaning that you know, manufacturers set their prices 
and uh, you know insurers, uh, and you know some of them become discounted as far as by the activities of pharmacy benefits managers and insurers benefits designs, which you know steer their enrollees towards the drugs they've gotten the better deals on. In a sense, that's the competitive approach. The problem with that is that uh, in you know when we're talking about drugs. You know, the notion of getting patients engaged with skill in the game, skin in the game, that doesn't go very far because drugs today are so expensive that in the sense to tell the patient that, uh, you know, well, you have to pay 25% of the cost of that. For many patients, that means I can't access the drug and nobody wants that to happen. So, you know, I think, I think we're running into something about that our approach of engaging competition where we can is just not constraining enough to prices. And why isn't it constraining to prices? Well, patents, you know, drugs have monopolies that have been conferred by the government to encourage R&D. And, uh, you know, some drugs have, uh, you know, no competitors. So it's a unique treatment for disease and, uh, uh, company knows that their only competition would be other medical care approaches like surgery yeah. sometimes. Uh, so in a sense, you know, there's, there's no consumer constraint because if a drug costs hundred thousand dollars, you know, how much you can expect the patient to pay. And today, you know, pretty much all insured patients except in Medicare um, have a catastrophic coverage meaning that uh, they won't pay more than a certain amount out of pocket for uh, medical care of any sort, including prescription drugs. So in a sense, uh, and I think the reaction is that uh, the, the political reaction you get from the public is a combination of, you know, I can't access these treatments because I can't afford uh, what I have to pay or yes, you know, I can afford it, but then I have to give up on food and other important elements of life. And uh, I think people are, uh, you know, finding a situation with drugs they don't find in the rest of medical care. And they're very angry about that. Because I can imagine the uninsured have no chance to afford prescription drugs because they can't even afford insurance. How much do people, because I can imagine also a lot of people that have insurance think that no matter what happens to them, at least a majority of a prescription they need, whether it's for a serious or semi-serious illness, will be covered by insurance. How, how do you know the statistics on or how many insured people get burned by the high cost of prescription drugs or generally are most of the people that are insured covered? Um, well, I think most people insured are covered, but that doesn't mean that they don't have to pay anything. Yeah. And it turns out they may have to pay a lot. Uh, for some prescription drugs, uh, despite their insurance. But, you know, I see the point you're getting at. You know, it's not that clear why large numbers of insured people should feel that, uh, you know, they just can't afford drugs or, you know, when they pay for drugs, it's a major uh, sacrifice. Now, they may be coming conscious of, you know, look how high it's driving my premiums. You know, because these prices are much more visible to consumers than, you know, prices for hospital care or physician services. So, you know, maybe that's an element of what gets people so upset about this issue, that it's much more visible to them. 
in, in a general sense, and I know it's complicated when it comes to the, the legislative side of this, but in a functioning government, the, the federal government, the United States Congress, hypothetically, if they agreed on things and agreed, agreed, on, agreed on a structure or a framework, could rein in the price gouging of pharmaceutical companies on specific drugs. Hypothetically, they could do that, right? Well, definitely, sure. So, I mean, yeah, the legal yeah, authority is there. Uh, what I mean is that you could pass legislation that would be constitutional, that could control. Uh, and, you know, what I should say is that most other advanced higher income countries do have government controlling drug prices. It, it goes back to another issue that we're, we won't get into the weeds of, which is, well, a lot of the politicians in the United States Congress, they could make an impact on this are having campaigns heavily funded by pharmaceutical companies that don't want legislation reigning in their drug prices. So it's to me, as someone who follows the politics and is trying to understand, a, to take a complicated issue and break it down further, as long as you have pharmaceutical companies lining the pockets of politicians, that's going to make it so, that has made it so much more difficult to get ahead on this which has made it so that we haven't really come that far in helping people afford the drugs they need. Yes, I, I agree. That's a a, uh, a very significant reason. Uh, reason because, Is it the most significant reason, you think? Yeah, it's up there. Yeah, I think it might be. Uh, because the pharmaceutical industry uh, has such lobbying clouds. Part of it is the money that contributes. Part of it is that, uh, you know, many... Uh, you know, the industry is in many places and, you know, in each place, they're an important source of jobs. And, and although often many of these jobs are jobs that, you know, you wouldn't lose. Uh, you know, everybody's fighting to get the scientists working on developing new drugs. Uh, but, uh, you know, in many districts. So in a sense, you find, uh, you know, some many Democrats who, you know, would be more inclined to uh, you know, engage governments in restricting drug prices, um, you know, they have a lot of pharmaceutical companies in their districts, and that makes them hesitate. Sure. Uh, not only contributions, but just the uh, the importance of those companies to their constituents. I think of back ten years ago, or however long it was, with the Affordable Care Act, where they were talking about health uh, um, insurance companies were not going to be as profitable, or there weren't going to be as many jobs. People were going to lose jobs. And none of that happened, except the opposite happened. You know, these companies kept hiring and they kept making more money. So the same thing is with the pharma companies, from what I understand, if not more, they're not hurting for money. So which makes it so that putting the burden, wherever the, 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 the burden goes, it eventually ends with someone either having to make a decision like, like you were alluding to before, putting food on the table or taking a life-saving drug. It, it puts it puts consumers in a really difficult situation. You talked about alternative payment approaches or competition in the general sense. Can you elaborate a little bit more about why you think that would make an impact? Well, I'm not sure that when by alternative payment, you're talking about uh, you know for, uh, accountable care organizations or HMOs, which in a sense have uh, don't have much more ability to address high drug prices than, you know, than the, the mainstream uh, payment approaches in insurance. 
Um, you know, if that's what you're, you know, if you're talking about regulation, that's a different story. Well, let's talk about the competition and consolidation piece. Can you elaborate a little bit more? I know you've spoken about this particular topic. Um, obviously, creating competition always helps, but sometimes in, in, in the general sense, even to get one good drug to, to alleviate or to provide relief for people facing a particular issue takes a lot of time. Wouldn't relying on competition just, just it, it, it's, a, it's a nice thought to have in the sense that the more drugs we have for a particular il uh, illness, the better. But I feel like that's a, that's a long road. That's something that takes a long time. Well, yeah, it, it's something, you know, the fact is that we have some drugs where there is no competition because, uh, you know, only one company has come up with something that uh, yeah. works and has been approved uh, for the drug. So some of these situations are just inherently non-competitive because we have opted to use competition only in a limited way uh, through our patent system. You know, we've said, if you come up with a new drug, and, uh, you know, we're going to give it a patent and, uh, you know, it'll be many years. And of course, we have the Hatch-Waxman legislation from quite a while ago that kind of sets the rules for generic competition. And ironically, you know, generic drugs is something where the United States has done very well with them. Yeah, for sure. But when it comes to brand names, you know, it is, uh, you know, it pays more than twice what other countries pay. I ask questions like this sometimes to people I've interviewed, because it seems everything in the federal government, especially, or in any type of government, things move slowly. If you had a magic wand and overnight could make a couple changes to the system as it stands in relation to the exorbitant rise in, in drug prices, what, what would be some quick, easy fixes to alleviate some problems for, for people all across the country? Well, you know, I think we've seen we have uh, actually the past few years has been a very fruitful period as far as uh, uh, different people in Congress developing uh, legislative ideas for drug pricing that uh, you know very very likely would work. Uh, you know, and they range they range uh, you know some of the Senate Finance Committee, uh, I guess in the previous Congress, uh, reported something which was focused on Medicare. Uh, but, uh, you know, revamped the Medicare Part D program, which ironically, I don't want to spend too much time on it now, uh, you know, as a program that was pretty well designed yeah. as, in a sense, a competitive program, a private insurance program. But then changes in the drug market, uh, you know, with, the, you know, the arrival of uh, specialty drugs, which were much more expensive than the drugs um, the chemical compounds that we had patented before, uh, the changes in the in the drug market, in a sense, made the uh, Part D design really obsolete, and it needs to be fixed. So you know, a, a fixes for Medicare Part D, uh, which were actually developed by MedPAC in two installments, I think in 2016 and then again in 2020. That, that appears in the, in the bill in the House, HR3, and appeared in the Finance Committees. Uh, you know, and I think these things would help long term. But as far as, you know, more direct constraints on prices, the Finance Committee had an inflation cap, meaning that uh, if your drug price goes up faster than the inflation rates, you know, 
the amount above the inflation rate gets rebated uh, in the finance committee bill to, to Medicare in the uh, HR3 in the House to, to everybody. The House you know, was the first uh, major approach to actually talk about, they call it negotiation. And what they actually put forward was a blend, I would call it a blend of negotiation and government price ceilings. So what the bill said is that, uh, you know, look at these six countries, uh, other advanced countries, the prices that uh, are selected by HHS to, uh, uh, to address, those prices have to be, you know, between the, uh, the lowest priced drug in the uh, um, the lowest price for the drug in those uh, six countries, or the uh, average, uh, the mean of or 120 percent of the mean in uh, over the, all the countries. Now, within that range, there is negotiation. Members of Congress like to refer to it as negotiation, but you know, frankly the heaviest lift is being done by the regulation. You know, when you look at the CBO estimate of that bill, most of the savings come from that range established by the formula, not the negotiation within the range. Do you think that Congress was, where does that legislation sit right now? That legislation was actually reported by the Ways and Means Committee this week as okay. part of reconciliation. The Energy and Commerce Committee could not get it out. There was opposition from some Democratic moderates. I saw um, that. And uh, so, but the issue was still alive because, in a sense, the Ways and Means Committee uh, report brings it to the leadership. What is your prediction that this would, or probability that you think this could become law? Yeah, it's uh, you know, certainly less than 50-50. Primarily um, because why? because of the opposition to it. Yeah. So in a sense, you know, it would have to uh, appear in the House bill and the Senate would have to accept those provisions, which is, uh, you know, tough with the very slim majorities that Democrats have. Republicans seem entirely against it. And so it, it's, it's a long haul now. In, in your opinion, are there any, can you relate or understand or is there anything logical on the opposing side to this? Or do you think it's purely politics? Well, I think the one logical argument they make, and there's something to it, is innovation. Now, we know that resources devoted to innovation for new drugs you know, are based on the expectations of how profitable they'll be. You know, what If the company succeeds in developing a new drug, what kind of price might it get? So to the degree that uh, there is regulation, even if it's only applied to the drugs out there now, it's likely that investors will say, uh, well, you know, the environment is much more uncertain. We might get less for this drug than we would have in the past. So we might invest less. And you certainly could say, you know, we know that throughout our economy, you know, we're all in favor of innovation. But we know that uh, unlimited innovation isn't what we want because that would be unlimited expensive. Mm -hmm. so in a sense, it, you know, it's realistic that if we're going to constrain drug prices because we're having so much trouble affording drugs at the current prices, 
uh, then we will get somewhat less, less innovation. And it's really up to the, uh, uh, you know, the venture capitalists and other investors to, you know, target their smaller investments, uh, you know, to the drugs with the biggest promise. You take the opposition to this bill, the, the people's opposition at face value, that that's what they're genuinely concerned about? Or do you think there are, are ulterior motives to, to kill this bill? Ulterior motives. Uh, they'll make less money. That is the only logical reason that I see for opposing this, but it's a significant reason because it does exist. It's just a matter of the degree. And, uh, you know, it's a, uh, we don't have really much any research that's reliable about uh, how much of an impact, you know, in a sense, 30 years down the road, how would things look as far as new drugs compared to the way they would look um, if the current system uh, continued? So in a sense, we're, we're in the dark there. So you think the odds are less than 50-50 this will get through? At this point, I believe that within the next few years, there will be something like this. What do you think? What do you think will change in the next few years that will get people to to rally around this? Uh, I think our fiscal situation. You know, the country's fiscal situation to me is dire. Uh, you know, our deficits are exploding, yeah. and uh, you know there will come a time of reckoning where uh, there will be a, a fiscal crisis, and uh, you know then. Congress will get together on, okay, what do we need to do to get the economy back on track? Didn't we, didn't we face that reckoning in 2008? In, in a sense, I know it was related for different reasons, but... I think the opposite happened in 2008. I think that this uh, country was reasonably disciplined as far as wanting to keep deficits moderate, and you know, developed uh, many procedures in Congress. Uh, you know, created the budget committees and the Congressional Budget Office, so that Congress could view the budget in a whole. And there were many pieces of, you know, everyone today hears the word reconciliation. Uh, the same process was used many times to reduce the deficits, uh, and in a sense, that uh, led to mixtures of uh, spending cuts and revenue increases uh, that control the deficit. I think in 2008, with the crisis, you know, appropriately, our deficit in the short term got very big. But it seemed as though after that, uh, the Congress and both parties really are implicated in this, seem to have lost all fiscal discipline. You know, if you look at what happened in 2017, uh, when the uh, tax cuts were passed, uh, you know, that increased the deficit enormously. And there seemed to be no resistance to it. Well, there, there was just, they had enough, they had, the same way that the current administration is trying to get a budget through is the same way they got through reconciliation. There was no, right, that the, the tax cuts, I don't think a lot of people realize this, but was put through, through budget reconciliation. Yeah, right? it was. In a sense, the process has been used to actually increase the deficits. They promised though, to, because the CBO, sorry, Paul, the, um, the the CBO, exactly what happened to the deficit with that because of that bill is what the CBO predicted. But at the same time, the then Trump administration had guaranteed that 
X amount of growth would cancel that out, but no one really who was really looking at the numbers really bought that the, the growth the, the prediction of those of those of those growth figures. Yeah, that, so you have a situation where both parties, if they can get policies they want, they're willing to ignore the increased deficits. Even with a continued explosion of debts and deficits, I still can't in my mind see the two parties coming together because like, look at what we're dealing with with coronavirus. This is a pandemic, it's killing people um, every day. People are losing their lives. And you have a lot of, you, to use a term you use, mistruths about vaccine effects, efficacy and the needs for vaccines. And there's a whole list of things that are, are causing us not to get out of this pandemic or at least majority or mostly get out of this pandemic. And this is, a, this is, this is life-threatening. I can't imagine because of runaway debt or runaway deficit spending that that's going to make people come together in both parties to try to do something good about it. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe absolutely. I'm just being maybe I'm just being too pessimistic. No, I think I think you raise a really good point, Alex, because the situation seems so different than from when prior to 2008, the two parties did come together for sure, and they compromised about uh, you know let's see what we can do to cut spending or raise revenues that we can agree on. And uh, it, it doesn't work that well these days. No. So, you know, I think you have a you know, very, raise a really good point about, uh, you know, will the ability to get together to do things be there? Now, you know, what you do find is on lots of individual pieces of legislation these days, two parties can come together. You know, but but the, you know, but the big one, which is you know, we really have to reduce our deficits. Uh, that's not as clear. Just to, for for a deficit question, let's let's just say what you would think, what you would claim is a worst case scenario, where our our debt, or le, or let me ask you, what what is more concerning to you, a runaway U.S. budget deficit or our national debt getting through thirty plus trillion dollars? What's the bigger issue facing the country? Well, it's really, it's really the same thing because the, you know, the debt is the result of the budget deficits. So in a sense, yeah. if, uh, if the, you know, what, what's happened is that in recent years, as we've increased the deficits, it hasn't increased the debt as much as it would in a more normal economy because interest rates have been so low. So in a sense, it's been very inexpensive for the treasury to finance the deficits. Now, yeah. now, all we need is for interest rates in, uh, you know, in, you know, in the ten-year Treasury, say, to return to more normal levels. This would make our debt much more difficult and expensive to finance, and uh, you know, to the degree that deficits uh, drive up long-term interest rates. Basically, this is a matter of the government the government's deficit borrowing needs crowding out the private sector's need for capital. You know, that just has not been happening lately. There's been enough capital for everybody. And you think that's 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 not going to last? It's hard to say, see how it can last indefinitely. And the breaking point will be what? I think the thing you'll see is you'll see the, uh, the interest rates shooting up. Why if that's that, that's and again, I'm not I'm not my brain is not good with the economic stuff. 
um, when we talk numbers. But am I right to think, am I understanding this correctly, that interest rates will make it harder to pay down the debt, which will then lead to more problems? Why would the Fed then ever raise back interest rates? The Fed only controls short-term interest rates. Okay. It does not control long-term interest rates. Where, is that, where does that get put together? That's strictly a market thing. Okay. In a sense, it's a worldwide market. Okay. So the Fed doesn't control them. And in a sense, you know, they reflect many countries' fiscal situations as well as, as, well as the, uh, you know, the overall amount of savings available and, uh, and deficits in other countries. Yeah, I guess I already mentioned deficits in other countries. So, you know, we're somewhat in a world we don't understand. You know, I don't think we understand that well as to why interest yeah. rates, the ones that are not controlled, why they have remained so low. Is it, again, I don't, I don't know what the world was like before I was in it, right? But I do know that, you know, we, since, since I've been around, when I was a little kid, I know there was um, you know, the stock market crash in the late 80s. Then we transitioned to the dot-com era crash. Then we had 9-11. Then we had the 08 housing crisis, and now we're dealing with a pandemic. And it just seems like things are catastrophes for all different kinds are happening so much, or not not so much, but they're happening more frequently. Hurricanes, flooding, disasters, pandemics, financial crises. There's just so much, there's so many interruptions that it feels like no matter what we do in the short term to get spending under control, as more and more of these things are more commonplace than to help people out when they need it. You're gonna to have to, politicians from either party are gonna to have to say, well, yeah, this may impact the long-term debt, this may cause inflation, but you have X amount of hundreds of thousands of people who can't eat, you have X amount of millions of people who are on the streets. Like, are we ever gonna be in a situation where the, where the country or the world is gonna be so steady and so not dealing with these kind of problems that are constantly putting us on our back foot? Is, is this just an exercise that, it's 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 uh, it's futile at some level. Well, you know, I think we've put ourselves in a very bad position because you know what most economists uh, will tell you is that uh, when times are good, and times have been good, you know, for quite a while, you know, except for the uh, pandemic uh, recession. You know, when times are good, you shouldn't be running deficits because you want to you know, reserve the ability to step in at times like 2008 and at times like now when you have a pandemic where there is, you know, really critical need for expansive short-term spending. And you want to make sure you can do that. But, you know, by running very large deficits when times are good, uh, you really compromise your ability to do that. I'm going to switch just to one question, maybe two, before we conclude, because all in this will have been a lengthy interview and I appreciate the time. This has been great. In, in regards to the pandemic, from your experience and your all the stuff that you've seen in your life and all the stuff that you've worked on as it relates to health and to the economy, do, do you feel that almost two years into the pandemic, we're just going to, is the coronavirus something that you imagine that we're going to be living with for a long time or forever and we just have to continue to learn how to manage it? Or do you think there's a way in which we could have or can in the future have the coronavirus disappear? Is there, do you have any type of sense or any intuition on what you think the world is going to be like in relation to the coronavirus in the next few years? Well, you know, I'm not a scientist and, uh, you know, don't really have an answer to the question, except that I know that there are 
some scientists who know this area who basically have said, you know, we lost our chance to put the coronavirus away for good. We're going to have to live with it. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is not an area that I'm knowledgeable about. So, yeah. uh, you know, what I would say is that what concerns me, you know, I think government has done a number of good things in dealing with it. Uh, you know, certainly the developments of the vaccine, of, uh, you know, stepping in and, you know, promising to buy doses from companies that can develop one. Sure. And then, of course, we have the technological breakthrough of the mRNA vaccines, which and that technology is going to, you know, help us in many areas going forward. You know, th those are some of the uh, highlights. And in a sense, getting relief to people very quickly, you know, with a very different type of recession. Uh, this is a recession where, in a sense, supply was withdrawn as opposed to demand was insufficient. Very different. Yeah. Uh, what worries me now is how, you know, the notion of, uh, you know, the virtues of vaccines, which we require for, uh, you know, a whole list of conditions, the most of the vaccines are given in childhood, that that's become political football now. Yeah. And, you know, it really, uh, it weakens the country's ability to deal effectively with uh, this pandemic and future pandemics. So th that to me is a great concern. Last thing I just want to ask you as it relates to the pandemic, if you don't mind, biggest thing we should have done that we didn't do that you think would have made a difference would be would be what, just from your personal opinion? Oh, I think we should have uh, mandated vaccines earlier. We should have come up with vaccine passports so we have reliable proof when people are vaccinated. You know, I think that's something we we missed. How about and at the start? How about at, 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 in the February, March timeframe of 2020? Do you think with the information that we had, we could have done anything differently that would have made a difference now? No, no, I don't think so. You think it was uh, coming regardless? Actually, one, one thing I would say is that it would have been helpful, you know, given the importance of masks to reduce the spread of infections, I think it would have been comfortable, uh, you very useful for government to basically be taking on some role of uh, certifying, saying, you know, these are good masks, these aren't. If you want to wear a mask, these are the masks you should buy. Because I have a sense that uh, people that really want to be masked and are wearing it to, you know, protect others, protect themselves, you know, there's been a paucity of information about, uh, oh, you know, which ones are really effective. And uh, I just remembered seeing my brother a couple of months ago who was wearing a mask that clearly didn't fit him. And yeah. I wasn't doing him any good at all. <laughs> And uh, I actually finally said, you know, here's where you buy one. They have sizes. <laughs> they tell you how to measure yourself. Uh, well, listen, I, I've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, Paul, I really appreciate you chatting with us. You, your background, your career, your insight. I know I asked you a little bit of questions off topic from what you normally talk about. But while I had you, I, I felt the need that I had to ask you just to get some personal opinions on things. But I know a lot of people listening, especially the healthcare people and the financial people listening to this are going to get a lot out of it. Um, and I'm excited for the future, whether it's virtual or in person, to get you back to our programs so people in our group and our in our membership base can continue to listen to you um, and the committees that we work with. And um, I appreciate you giving me some time again, and I look forward to talking to you in the future. Oh, yeah. It's, it's been a pleasure, Alex. I, you're a really good interviewer. That oh, made thanks. It, made it fun for me. Thanks, Paul. 
Thanks for listening. Subscribe to Millennium Live to listen and learn on life and leadership. 